Our scripture text today is the first 15 verses of chapter 35 in Genesis. So let us stand for the reading of the Word of God, Genesis 35, verses 1 through 15. Then God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, and live there, and make an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods which are among you, and purify yourselves, and change your garments. Let us arise and go to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God, who answered me in the day of my distress, and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods which they had and the rings which were in their ears and Jacob hid them under the oak which is near Shechem. As they journeyed there, there was a great terror upon the cities which were around them and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And he built an altar there and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died and was buried below Bethel under the oak. It was called Alam Bakuth, or the tree of weeping. Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Pandanaram, and he blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. Thus he called him Israel. God also said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come forth from you. And the land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I'll give to you. And I will give the land to your descendants after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone, and poured a, out a libation on it. He also poured oil on it. So Jacob named the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. You may be seated. Well, thankfully, we're through with the rapes and the genocides and the murders that we read about the other day in earlier chapters. This is a great chapter. It's a heartwarming and encouraging and enlightening chapter. <coughs> And one thing you see in all these chapters, one right after another, is that Jacob and Isaac and Abraham's God talks all the time. Reveals himself in words and sentences that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob can understand. When I was in seminary in the middle 60s, there was a guest professor there by the name of Campbell. Couldn't stand a thing he said. And after his liberal speech lecture, we met in the student lounge where questions could, people could ask him questions. And of course, the seminary was liberal. And so all the liberal students came to, to uh, ask him questions. I came out of curiosity. And so Dr. Campbell Every five or six words, he blasphemed. Now, this is a group of seminary students in a seminary, and he's lecturing on biblical things, and he's not just cussing with little four-letter words. I mean, we're talking blasphemy. And every four or five words, he blasphemes. Well, I took all I could take. So I said, Dr. So-and-so, I don't want to be disrespectful, but... I think you could communicate more effectively 
if you did not take the name of our Lord God in vain. And he said, blankety, blankety, blanky, you cannot take God's name in vain because you can know nothing about this great God. I said, sir, if you can know nothing about him, how do you know you can know nothing about him? Has he told you that? (laughs) He hadn't told you that because he doesn't reveal himself. So he changed the subject. So we are worshiping, and the God of the Bible is not an unknowable God. He is a God who can be known. You can say truthful things about him, not things that, are, that originate with you, but you can uh, know this God and know him personally and know right things about him because of the things he says about himself. God is there, Francis Schaeffer said, and he is not silent. He's a God who speaks, and that's the origin of speech. Speech and language did not originate with man and with a bunch of cavemen when they started grunting around and learning how to, to speak words here and there. That language originated with God. God spoke. Language, verbs, subjects, past, present, tense, verbs, adjectives. He spoke in language that human beings could understand. And that's why we speak. And that's where language came from. It came from God speaking to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. So in the Old Testament, God would reveal himself to his people in a variety of ways. Sometimes he would appear as an angel, as, a, as God in human form, and he would sit at table and eat with his people, and then they would talk over the meal, just like you and I would talk over the meal. Sometimes he would talk out of the sky. You couldn't see anything, but there was this voice that was unmistakably divine. And I say unmistakably because, you know, when God speaks, you know who's talking to you. When God speaks to you in the Bible uh, and in history, You don't say, who's that? Who is that? When God speaks, you know. And so he would speak by voices out of the sky. He would speak to them in dreams and visions. He would even speak through them to a donkey one time. You remember that? And so God is a God who speaks in words and sentences that are meaningful to him, and meaningful to us. But it doesn't do that anymore. Doesn't speak out of the skies. Doesn't speak to us in dreams and visions. Doesn't speak to us in the appearance of an angel of light. Does not speak to us with a voice out of the sky. He does it in a better way a clearer way. He does that in the Lord God incarnate by the power of the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 1 says that God spoke to his people in little bits and pieces in Old Testament times, but now he speaks to us through his Son. So the best revelation you can have, the clearest the most powerful is what God says through the Lord Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. So don't wish for those times when Jacob and all these men actually saw angels of the Lord and actually heard his voice out of the sky. Remember what Peter said in 1 Peter? Peter said, I was there at the transfiguration. I was there on that Mount of Transfiguration when all of a sudden Elijah and Moses, who'd been dead for centuries, all of a sudden when Elijah and Moses met with the Lord Jesus Christ just before his death and resurrection, I was there, he said. I saw Jesus' face and countenance 
shining brighter than the new uh, Middle Eastern midday sun. I heard the voice of God actually speak out of heaven that day. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. But then Peter said this in so many words, but I'd rather have the book. I'd rather have the book. The voice fades. Memory forgets. The book's there permanently for us to read. So God has revealed himself in various ways in Scripture, and now he reveals himself through Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, now, what's all been going on? Been a rough, rough time for Jacob. Shows weaknesses in all of Jacob's family. I mean, remember, Jacob's family is the church. That His family is the chosen people of God. These people... Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, these people are the ancestors of the Savior of the world, of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And salvation is going to come into this world through this little family. And it's also the church. And it's weak. And we just saw how weak it was in the past couple Sundays. You saw Dinah, Jacob's uh, uh, daughter, being raped by a pagan man. We see her brothers, Simeon and Levi. Levi was the beginning of the priesthood of the Old Testament. We see them going crazy with anger because of the way their sister was violated. So they committed genocide to this whole city and wiped out every male in this city with a sword, killed them all, tricked them. He said to the, they said to these men, you can marry our sister now that you've slept with her. You can marry our sister, but you have to be circumcised because we don't marry uncircumcised people. They got to bear the sign of the covenant. So you can see how confused he was on the sacraments. And so uh, the boy who raped Dinah said to him, uh, his daddy, said, I will agree. On the third day, we'll do it. So on the third day, all the men and boys in the entire city were circumcised. And when they were at their weakest and most painful moment. Sons of Jacob slaughter them. Jacob's rebuke. Now these, these sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. So we're not talking about a bunch of pagans here. We're talking about the church. We're talking about the, the, the uh, sons and daughters of God here that are acting like murderous fools. Jacob himself wasn't the strongest father. His rebuke wasn't that impressive. And so the father of the, of the boy came to Jacob and said, uh, I'm sorry to show you how sorry I am. I'm going to give you a bunch of money. Jacob uh, didn't want it. Jacob also was very sorrowful and very repentant. So his miserable Bible chapter of the other day. But this is a great one. Even though the title of the sermon might be confusing. The title of the sermon is The Terror of the Faithful Church on the cities around her. Now, let's look at this passage of Scripture and see what we can learn. Chapter 35. 
So God comes to Jacob again and tells him, go to Bethel. He and God had met there before. He said, when you get to Bethel, I want you to build an altar to me. Now, you ask yourself the question. Jacob was a weak father after having cheated his brother out of his birthright. And uh, the brothers, his sons were all murderers. Why didn't God kill them all? It was a covenant. And in that covenant, it says, the wages of sin is death. The soul that sinneth it shall die. Nobody died that day. But God continued to bestow his favor upon them. Even Jacob in all his weakness. Did God say, well, I better not kill you all, then we won't have any salvation. Forget that. Only reason God did not kill Jacob and his sons was this altar he made. There was a death on that altar. And in this covenant, sin requires punishment by death. There's no exception. And that death was the substitutionary sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. These patriarchs, everywhere they went, they would build altars. They would sacrifice animals on them because they were taught all the way back from Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve taught Cain and Abel that God can only be approached by bloody sacrifice. When Adam taught his sons could only approach God with the death of an animal and his hide turned into clothes. And you appear before God only because of the death of a substitute. Go all the way back to the very first man and woman in history. God's people have learned you sin, you die unless you have a substitute. And that's why they were always building altars. Remind themselves and their children down through their generations, we have a substitute. He is the son of promise. He's none other than the son of God in human flesh. And the anger that should have consumed us, the anger of God, consumed him on the altar of the cross. That's the only reason you don't die when you sin. Every time you sin, you should die, so should I. And the reason we don't is because of that last altar on Calvary when Jesus took our place. So, uh, Jacob goes to Build a house. And one of the things that stands out clear here is that Jacob was really repentant. Wasn't just embarrassed. He was really repentant for being so lax with his children that they could even become murderers. The great sons of the great patriarch. So, Jacob's not taking this lightly. He's not passing the blame. Saying, I need to repent because I was lax with my children in their early days. I wasn't strict enough. I let them get away with more things than they should have. So you see in verse 2, So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods which are among you. 
Here's Jacob's son, the church. Worshipping false gods, little idols. Maybe they were hand-carved idols or something. Maybe they were a special stone. Maybe there was a rabbit's foot. But some kind of little symbol that represented a God that they looked to for power. So Jacob said, put away your foreign gods. Purify, purify yourselves. Change your clothes. You're going to see, it's interesting what repentance is. What do we see at repentance is? Repentance is to quit chewing tobacco. Quit smoking cigars. What's repentance to Jacob? Worshiping idols. Repent of your sins. Take a shower. Change your clothes. Carry all of your gold earrings. You remember when it said that? He said that over uh, later on in this chapter. And it's interesting that throughout the Bible, Old Testament, it's frequent that when the children of Israel were involved in some sort of idolatry, like the Golden Gap, every time they were told, take off your earrings and get rid of them. Why you reckon that is? Is it sinful to wear earrings? I can tell you it's sinful for men to wear earrings. Because earrings in men, pierced ears, is a sign of slavery. In the Mosaic legislation, if a man did not want to take upon himself all the responsibilities of freedom and maturity... He could offer himself to his master as a permanent slave. Say, you take care of me, I'll be your dependent for the rest of my life. So the way he would prove that is the master would take his ear lobe and put it on the doorpost of his house and then pierce it. That pierced ear in that man was a sign of slavery. I'm a slave, and I'm no longer accountable to myself, but to somebody else. So, you see what all this repentance is. It's not just a shallow little thing. Put away your false gods. Purify yourself. Get cleaned up. Change clothes. Now, you know what Calvin said, John Calvin said about us? In our hearts, he said, all of us have hearts that are idle factories. That we're always conjuring up something else to trust, something else to look to, rather than the living God. Having these little household idols, whether they were little things about a foot long or whether you could put them in your pocket, having these little idols was basically a denial of the, of, of the whole Christian religion. Why do you worship an idol? What did idols do? You know, fortune tellers in the Old Testament were capital criminals. If someone was found guilty of fortune telling, he was sentenced to the sent to the state and executed. You know what you do when you look at the horoscope in the newspaper? You're trying to get power that God hadn't given you. You're trying to control, understand, and control your future 
without God. Let's see what I'm going to do today. Let's see how life's going to treat me. It's an attempt to control your future and understand your future apart from God. And what's that a denial of? Well, that practice idolatry is a denial of the oneness of God. There's only one God, and he's not that little rabbit's foot. It's a denial of the spirituality of God. God doesn't have a body like men. He does not have a foot. It's a denial of the sovereignty of God. God's the only one that controls the future. So you see, having little superstitious idols like this are not just little things. Looking at a horoscope every now and then is not just a little thing. It's saying, I want to understand and control my future apart from God. That's why Jacob is being so strict now, finally. We've got to get rid of all these idols in our household. I'll let you get away with them once. You grew up in your daddy's house with them, my in-laws, but we're not going to do this anymore. Those days are over. So he's calling himself and them to strict, unqualified, total submission to the one true and living God. This family is going to serve God and is going to serve God alone. This family is going to look to God, a sovereign God, to guide its future and to no other God, no other person. There'll be no, no further superstition in this family. Let me have a little rabbit trail. It'll be a slow rabbit because it only has three feet. But... You know how we people in this country, Reformed and Evangelical churches, practice superstition every Sunday? They don't use the regulative principle of worship. And they don't say in this church, we will do nothing in the worship service except what God has commanded in the Scriptures. They don't obey that rule. They become idolaters, for instance. And this is all in the book of Isaiah. When you do something in worship that God hasn't commanded you to do in the Bible, cross yourself, genuflect. You do some right in worship that God hadn't commanded and then expect God to bless that right that he hasn't commanded, you are committing superstition. Here's another way. When you come to a worship service and your heart's not in it and you do all the right things, say all the right prayers and confessions, sing all the right hymns, but your heart is far from the Lord, but nevertheless, God's going to accept the worship because of the right things you do. It's superstitious. You're becoming idolater. You're becoming the source of your idols. You become the idol factory. So Jacob says, those days are over. We're not going to worship or have anything to do with any other God but the living God. And we devote ourselves entirely to him. And in some way, earrings were connected with idolatry. I'm not sure how, but every time there's, as I said, there's idolatry de dealt with, they're told to take off the earrings. And I'm sure they were all pierced ears. And some way or another, they had to do with idolatry in the Old Testament. I don't know. But I got a feeling it has to do with pierced ears as a sign of slavery as an identity. Why do young men pierce their ears today? To identify with a certain group of people. Not with the church and the godly elders in the church, but with the young men that fill our culture.
They want to identify with them. They want to be relevant like they are. So they're identifying the pagan culture on purpose, not with the church of the Lord God Almighty. So this repentance has to be thorough. It has to be obvious and public. Go take a shower. Whatever clothes you were wearing, when you worship these idols, take them off and put on clean clothes. You don't want to be identified with these idols in any way, shape, or form. Whatever clothes you were wearing, whatever jewelry, get rid of it because you want people to see that you are not an idolater. You want people to see that. So, in verse 3, Jacob says to his family, So let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I'll make there an altar to God. Answered me in the day of my distress, and has been with me wherever I have gone. That's an amazing statement, isn't it? Think of all the sins that Jacob has committed. And God just keeps on blessing him. God just keeps on living with him, protecting him, providing for, makes him a wealthy man, gives him a whole crowd of children that produce more children so that the number of his descendants is the greater, greater than the stars, the sky, and the sand, and the seashore. This is Jacob's family. This is the cheater's family. This is the weak man's family. This is the man upon whom God has chosen to bestow sovereign grace. God says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And I will harden those whom I will harden. And I decided before the beginning of time that I would choose Jacob. I knew all about all this before the beginning of time. But I still love it. Sorry, God. So in verse 4, they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods which they had and the rings which were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the oak, which was near Shechem. And they journeyed, as they journeyed, there was a great terror. Here's the title of my sermon. As they journeyed, there was a great terror upon the cities which were around them, and those cities did not pursue the sons of Jacob. Oh, I love that. You don't even know what that means today. We should. You know, just not long before, Jacob was scared to death that Esau was coming to kill him. That Esau was coming with 400 men to kill him for cheating him out of his blessing. But God, in his grace, called them to reconcile with each other. And they embraced each other and hugged each other. And Esau said, let me uh, put my soldiers in the front of this mass of a uh, number of people as you go into the promised land because there's going to be a lot of mean people there. And let me use my army, J uh, Jacob, to defend the church. Jacob says no because you can't blend those whom God loves with those whom God hates. That you've got to keep the antithesis clear between the church and the world. So he turned down Esau. Now, they're on their way to the promised land. And as they go through little city-state after city-state, I mean, there's all kinds of them. Word's already gotten out. You don't mess with Jacob's family. You don't rape his daughter. Or you can have the whole city killed. 
And so as they traveled through this land, they were safe. Now, it's not a terror of God that fell upon these cities. It's not as they marched through this land that the cities learned to, ter- uh, to be terrified by God. The terror is of Jacob and the church. And as Jacob and the church traveled through the land, nations were so terrified by them that they wouldn't touch a hair on their heads without the will of their Father in heaven. It says, as they journeyed, there was a great terror or great dread upon these pagan cities which were around them, and they dare not pursue them. They dare not do them any harm. It's going to be a great day when the world once again is afraid of the church. Afraid that if we mess with the church, we say bad things about the church, we're going to experience the the power of God in our lives. That's going to be a great day. The world's not afraid of the church right now. Some places it is. The world's not afraid to mock us. It's not afraid to lie about us. It's not afraid in foreign countries to make martyrs out of us. There's no dread in the world for the church today. Why? Because there's no repentance. There's no faithfulness. There's no absolute loyalty to God. We have our little idols. We have our little superstitious thing. And there's no reason to be afraid of us. So you pray for that day when the world will have a sense of dread the church. I wouldn't even imagining lying about us, slandering us. But that day's not going to come until we all bury our little household gods, take off our pierced earrings, and take a shower and change our clothes. And totally and publicly commit ourselves to the living God and the living God alone. So that the world can see whose we are. That's why Jacob built an altar. You don't build an altar in your living room. You build an altar out there in the yard in public. That's why he put a stone pillar out there, a big stone pillar, and then anointed it with wine and oil. He wanted everybody to see, we don't worship the same God you worship. This family's a Christian family. We belong to the living God, El Shaddai, Elohim, Jehovah. We don't belong to Baal or any other of the gods of the paganites. And we want you to know who we are. We're not bragging. We're not boasting. We're just publicly letting you know that we don't worship the same God you worship. And so this altar was a testimony to all the pagan tribes. And you know, most pagan tribes, if you were in a city that was dedicated to a particular pagan god, and your neighbor put up an altar to another god, he's very likely to be killed by the rest of the citizens for blaspheming the city's god. But nobody's going to do that to Jacob. He's going to publicly let the world know there's nothing secret here. The world's going to know to whom we belong. And so we're going to build an altar and then we're going to build this big stone pillar. And then we're going to have a dedicatory service and pour wine over it and pour olive oil all over it. And y'all are welcome to come. There's your stone pillar right there. Take that wine, you take that bread. 
and you say to the whole world, we want you to know whose we are. So this thing of Christianity is a public thing. It's not a private thing. It's not something you do in private. It's something you do and stand for in the marketplace, in the city square, right out in the open where everybody can see. We belong to God. I wouldn't be surprised if some of those stone pillars still weren't standing over there somewhere or another. But it was because of their courage that the pagan nations were scared to death of them. That's what you want the American culture to be of you. Not to see you as a bunch of hypocrites, but to see you as somebody to be afraid of if we try to mess with you. Because then we'll be messing with the living God. So, what all would that uh, uh, altar and pillar say to the other Canaanites around them? And listen, the city was full of Canaanites. The area was full of these people. The family of Jacob, the little church, was just a small little crowd of people. Canaanites filled the whole land by the thousands and thousands. They were all afraid to take on this little family. Because then they'll be dealing with God. So he builds an altar. He wants the world to know publicly whose they are, what religion they have, what God they serve. As we said last Sunday, there were all kinds of Canaanite altars everywhere around that were in disrepair. Jacob could have used any one of those rather than going to all the trouble of building an altar for his own. But he wouldn't, he wouldn't use the altars of the Canaanites because he wanted to keep the antithesis clear in the church of the world. We're not going to worship the way the Canaanites worship and we're not going to worship the gods the Canaanites worship. By the way, all Canaanite religion was statist religion. Baal, one of the most popular gods of the Canaanites, was closely identified with the state. So to worship Baal was to submit yourself unquestioningly to the head of the state, the king, the emperor political leader of the land. You're to do what the state tells you to do no matter what. You may never disobey the state. You may never go against it. You may never question it. When it tells you to do something that's contrary to the law of Almighty God, you must disobey it. You may not ever obey the government of the United States or Georgia when it requires you to do something that would require disobedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. You may never do it or you become an idolater. So pray that the day will come we'll experience real repentance in the church in this country. That repentance and that total dedication to the one true and living God will be so obvious that a great dread will fall upon all the cities around the church and they'll be afraid to do them any harm. Verse 6, So Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, and he and all the people who were with him, and he built an altar there and called the name of the place El Bethel, God, the house of God. Because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother Esau. Now there's another little verse here. And we'll probably stop with this verse. It's a verse 
And if the Bible was written today, it probably would not have been included in the Bible. What do we write books for? To commemorate great happenings. Honor great, powerful men and women. Not little housemaids. Deborah. You ever heard of this Deborah? This isn't a great Deborah. This is a little caregiver. This is a little old lady that was a nursemaid. Jacob's family. Now, Deborah. Becca's nurse died. And she was buried below Bethel under the oak. It was named the tree of weeping. And it's not that often today, but it was when I was growing up. When I was growing up as a little boy in West Virginia, my daddy was in World War II, so he didn't see me for the first two or so years of my life. And my mother and I lived with my grandparents. And there was this little lady named Fairy Smoot that took care of me. She took care of my mother. When my mother was a little baby. She took care of my grandmother. My grandmother was an old woman. And Fairy was older than my grandmother. There'll never be a book written about Fairy Smoot. But they did write a paragraph in the Bible about Deborah, the nursemaid of Jacob's children. Not only did they write a paragraph about her, they buried her with all the honor and all the pomp that they buried the other great women and men in Jacob's family. When she died, they buried her under a tree that nobody would ever forget. Big oak tree. The tree of weeping. Because the whole family was weeping over the death of this little nursemaid. When I was in college, there was a lady, black lady named Jewel Boer. When I went to college, we were talking about the early 60s. Uh, and Jewel Boer was a house cleaner. She cleaned the classrooms, the professor's offices. She here at the graduation service. Gave her an honorary doctorate degree. Faithfulness for the past 70 years as a housemate. Doesn't happen very often. So, what does this tell us? Not many mighty, not many noble. God has chosen the weak the base and found the high and the mighty. There'll be great men like Jacob. There will be nursemaids like Deborah. God does not allow your culture, your skin, your economic status, your educational level, Determine how he's going to treat you in the future. If you are a great man or a great woman of great means, 
The sovereign God did not choose to have compassion upon you. Before the beginning of time, you will go to hell. But if you are a little housemaid, and God chose before you were born and before the world began to look upon you with favor, you will go where the high and the mighty never will see. So understand that when we try to build a church here, we're not just looking at the high and the mighty. We want the lowly and the base because God bestows his mercy without prejudice upon people of his own choosing regardless of their status or worth in life or even regardless of their sin. Sin cannot stop the sovereign grace of God from accomplishing all of its purposes. So you go out there in America and you be a stone pillar anointed with wine and oil and you, your own life and your own family testify to this world. We belong to him, not to you. Our children belong to him, not to this culture. We don't worship the gods you worship. We're not, we're not slaves of the state. We're free men and women because we have been made free by the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is Christ and Christ alone that we worship. And if you ever command us to do something that will cause us to disobey Christ, we will not comply. You go to jail. Of not comply. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this great passage of Scripture. Thank you for the way that you have worked in the lives of your people for all of these millennia. We thank you for the converted Jacobs. and for the converted Deborahs. For Christ's sake, amen.